0: In TV and film, there are basically two kinds of rescue. Spider-Man is a great example of the first kind of rescue. Think about the way that Spider-Man rescues people. You know, they're, you know, in big trouble, and all of a sudden, Spider-Man swoops down, and he picks them up, and he rescues them from danger, and then he maybe swings around for a minute, and then plants them back on the sidewalk. They go about their business, and he goes about his. A very different type of rescue is perhaps best illustrated by a character from the Star Wars universe named the Mandalorian. Now, even if you've never seen the show, you've probably seen the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda merchandise in nearly every store you visited in the past two years. So, the Mandalorian does not swoop in and rescue Baby Yoda or Grogu and then leave him to go about his way. Instead, he does something different. He rescues him and then he lives with him. He cares for him. He raises him. He corrects Grogu when he's wrong. He teaches Grogu how to live like a Mandalorian. And some of you are like, what in the world is any of that? That's okay. Not important. He introduces Grogu to a family, and he even adopts him as a son. Now, think about those two types of rescue. If we're honest, some of us, would prefer that God rescue us like Spider-Man. Swoop in, save me from hell, and leave me alone. But in asking for that type of rescue, you are not asking for more love but less. Because when God rescues his people, it's a rescue that gets involved in the nitty-gritty areas of our lives and expects us to change and grow. The rescue that Jesus provides is a rescue that touches the most intimate parts of your life, including your most intimate relationships. In Matthew 19... Jesus is teaching his disciples how followers of Jesus should relate to one another. This whole teaching discourse, this whole section, is all about how we relate to each other. In 18, Jesus taught his disciples, how do we relate with one another in the local church? Now, at the beginning of chapter 19, Jesus begins by addressing how we relate with one another in our most intimate of relationships, the relationship of marriage. Uh, the big idea that I'd like for you to take away from our text this morning is this. Followers of Jesus must actually follow him, even in our most intimate relationships. We're going to be addressing this topic in one way or the other over the next three sermons. If you're our guest this morning, our normal habit is to walk verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we've been in Matthew for it seems like six or seven years. I don't think it's quite been that long, but we are in Matthew 19, and in God's providence today, we're dealing with this subject of marriage and divorce. And with what our culture celebrates as Pride Month, just around the corner, we're going to look at this passage again next week to consider how Jesus' teaching is incompatible with the culture of pride. And then we'll take one final look at verses 10 through 12 in two weeks when Jesus talks to, specifically, to singles. What what do we have for singles? Does Jesus have anything for them? Today, however, our our focus today is on the main point from this text, which is Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. By the way, I think it's important that pastors faithfully preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, because let me just tell you, I would just about rather preach on anything else. The only reason why I'm here talking about this is because if I skipped chapter 19 you guys should get on to me for it because that's what's next. Here's my desire this morning for each and every one of us here, whether you're married or divorced or single, a young person, an old person. Here's what I'm praying, that all of us will grow in our knowledge of and love for the truth about marriage, and that we'll work together as a church to help one another follow Jesus, even in this most intimate of relationships. In order, in order to do that, with God's help, I want to examine, us to examine together, six essential truths about marriage and divorce from the lips of Jesus. Six essential truths. Truth number one, marriage must be prioritized. Marriage must be prioritized. Look with me again, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So after Jesus finishes teaching his disciples about how to interact with one another in the local church, that was Matthew 18, it's kind of back to business as usual for Jesus. So he starts teaching, he starts healing people, kind of back to his ministry, and all of a sudden this group of Pharisees, you remember they're the religious elites, they're kind of the seminary trained pastor type sort of people, they come up to Jesus and they've got a question. And the text actually tells us in verse 3 that really they're not coming to Jesus really seeking the truth, they're actually trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to trap Him. And so, they ask Him, is it, is it lawful to, to divorce your wife for any reason? Jesus' response is instructive to us. They want to talk about divorce, and Jesus says, let's start by talking about marriage. Let's not start by talking about how marriage has been corrupted by sin. Let's start by talking about what God intended in the beginning. So, look at verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, as Jesus often does when he's confronted, he answers a question with a question. And, and I think, personally, his question to the Pharisees is pretty funny because these are the religious elites and they come up to him with this question about divorce, trying to trick Jesus, and Jesus begins by asking him, haven't you guys read the Bible? I mean, isn't that your job? Uh, this would be kind of like going before the Supreme Court and asking one of the esteemed honorable justices, have you even read the Constitution? Or yes. sitting down with your doctor and an appointment and ask him, have you even taken an anatomy class? I mean, this is kind of an offensive sort of question. But the point is that if they had read and understood their Bibles, they wouldn't be asking the question the way that they are. Uh, Jesus points the Pharisees to two passages in Genesis. They'll be on the screen for you that they should have known if they had read their Bibles. The first is Genesis 1.27 where at the end of the creation account, the text says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, after zooming in on the account of how God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, Moses, who writes Genesis, tells us, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Isn't it interesting that 1,500 years or so, after Moses penned those words, Jesus still goes there to articulate what he believes about marriage. is that interesting? Jesus goes back to the beginning. Both of those verses that Jesus quotes in Matthew 19 highlight the, the uniqueness of marriage, that this is a relationship that needs to be prioritized. Think about what those verses teach us. Marriage is a God-established union. Marriage was not Adam's idea. It wasn't Eve's idea. It was God's idea. It was God who looked at the man and said, it is not good for man to be alone. Adam's kind of blissfully ignorant, like most men. He's fine. He's not really even thinking about it. But God says it's not good, and God creates the marriage union. And if this is something that God has created, then it's his to define. Marriage is also a complementary union. It is not our sameness that binds men and women together in marriage, but our complementary differences. Marriage is a covenantal union. In marriage, the, the husband and wife are one flesh. They become one. There is, simply put, no relationship on the planet like marriage. Now, here's what that means practically for us. If you have been married for a long time, can I plead with you, don't grow comfortable in your marriage. Don't, go, don't grow comfortable. Whatever work you put into all your other relationships... that should pale in comparison to the work that you put into your marriage. By the way, young people who have never yet experienced marriage, yes, marriage actually takes work. You might think, well, that's weird. It seems like it would be easy. Well, you think that at first, and then it gets hard. It takes work. If you're here and you're a parent with young children, I love all the parents with young babies and little kids crawling around. It's a blessing to have you a part of this church. Can I just challenge you on this point? Prioritize your relationship with your spouse more than your relationship with your children. It's very easy for mom and dad to say, you know what? We can worry about each other later. Let's just focus on the kids. And certainly there are times when you might need to do that for a season. But if you become so engrossed in raising the kids that you neglect each other, what happens? Eventually the kids are gone, and you're living with a stranger. By God's grace, Holly and I have been married for 17 years. And by the way, she's not in here today, not because she didn't want to hear what I had to say about this. She's working in nursery. So um, we've been married for 17 years by God's grace, and we still regularly make time to invest in each other. Uh, we, just about every day, we try to go for a walk several miles together, pray together, talk together. And you just should just, just drive by my neighborhood sometime when we're walking and watch our kids. They're orbiting around Holly like she's the sun, and at some point, we have to say to our kids, get away. Now, we say it maybe, maybe a little bit nicer than that sometimes. But the whole point is listen, we need to connect. We need to pray. We need to talk. We love you. Please go over there. <laughs> Just last night, we've been married for 17 years. Last night, Holly and I went on our very first date night when we left the kids in charge. The house is still there. It's crazy. Listen, parents with young kids, it's hard. It's easy to say, we'll work on that later. Listen to me, if you do not prioritize this relationship, you will find yourself in trouble sooner than you think. Singles in this room, what does this have to do with you? Well, can I just challenge you guys, you gals? Don't get angry or jealous at the value that Jesus places on marriage here, okay? Don't get frustrated when your married friends have less time for you than your single friends. Be encouraged that they're trying to honor Jesus with their marriages, and instead of pulling them away from their spouse, consider how you might come alongside them and encourage them in their marriage, Marriage relationship must be prioritized. Number two, a second truth. Marriage was meant to be permanent. Marriage was meant to be permanent. After pointing the Pharisees to the uniqueness of the marriage relationship, Jesus applies his teaching and answers their question about divorce. It's in the second half of verse 6. What therefore, these are the words of Jesus. He's not quoting the Old Testament anymore. He's applying it, and he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, because God is the giver of marriage, marriage is meant to be a permanent relationship. The Pharisees aren't content with that answer. And so they hit Jesus again. Look at verse 7. They say, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Uh, Moses was, of course, the great lawgiver in the Old Testament. He writes the first five books of the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And yes, Moses does write instructions about divorce. Uh, if you want to read them this afternoon, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. Moses writes about divorce. Now, let me just kind of summarize Moses' teaching for you. In Moses' day, the marriage laws in other nations were cruelly one-sided in favor of men. Cruelly one- one-sided. One-sided. A woman could almost never demand a divorce, but a man could demand a divorce for virtually any reason. To make matters worse, if you're a man who divorced your wife in the ancient Near East and you changed your mind a little bit later and decided you wanted her back, you could just reclaim her for virtually any reason whenever you wanted to. So imagine, just try to put your head around this what it would be like to be a woman growing up in that culture. Just imagine with me. Imagine you're a wife in Moses' day. Your husband decides, one day, I want a divorce. There's really nothing you can do about it. You can't fight back. It is what it is. If you have children, and if those children are boys, and if they're old enough, then maybe they can help provide for you. If not you're in a lot of trouble. Child support, not a thing. Alimony, not a thing. Women being, being get, getting educated, being able to get the types of jobs that they can get today, not a thing. So basically, if you're a woman in that condition, your only hope just to provide your basic daily necessities is to find another husband. Now, what husband is going to want to marry that woman if at any moment her ex can knock on the door and say, I want her back, and there's nothing you can do about it. So in Deuteronomy 24, Moses writes instructions as a word of grace to protect women who are usually the victims of divorce you read verses 1 to 4, it's primarily about protecting a husband from reclaiming a wife that uh, that has remarried after she's been divorced. 1,500 years later, now we're back to Matthew 19, 1,500 years later, the religious leaders in Jesus's day are still arguing about Deuteronomy 24. Their argument is about one word, It's in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and it talks about divorcing your wife if you find some indecency in her. And the big debate was, well, what does that word indecency mean? And there are two schools of thought among the religious leaders in Jesus' day. There was one guy, his name was Rabbi Shammai, and Rabbi Shammai said, indecency means adultery. That's it. So you can divorce your wife if she has committed adultery. That's it. There's another rabbi, another teacher named Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel taught that indecency could mean virtually anything. Indecency could mean she burnt my toast. That's indecent, so I'm going to divorce her. Indecency could mean that I found another woman that's prettier than she is, so I can divorce her. When the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, can a husband divorce his wife for any cause? They're asking him to endorse that second position, the any cause view, that you can divorce your wife for whatever reason. But instead of getting into that debate, Jesus, again, goes back to the beginning. Jesus is basically saying, I don't care what Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel says about divorce. What does God's word say? Look at verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But look at this from the beginning, it was not so. God's intention from the beginning was that marriage would be permanent, divorce was never intended. If we are going to follow Jesus, actually follow Him, in our most intimate relationships, we need to understand that marriage was meant to be permanent. Let me just challenge us for a second, brothers and sisters. It's not enough to know God's standard and uphold God's standard. We also need to love God's standard. In order to love this, because this is hard, in order to love this, it's helpful to understand why God would want this, which leads to a third truth, that divorce is always painful. Divorce is always painful. It's been said that there are two people who truly hate divorce, God and anybody who's ever been through one. Those of you who have felt the sting of divorce can probably relate. Divorce harms the couple. At PBC, nearly every marriage that I've officiated over the last almost seven years, as your pastor, nearly every marriage I've officiated here has included someone who either was a child of divorce or a victim of divorce. I have never had a conversation with anybody about a divorce that was an easy conversation. You can see the pain in their eyes even as they talk about what happened. And nobody gets married thinking, one of these days we'll get a divorce, it's no big deal. Even if divorce is a necessary evil to escape a sin-filled marriage, it still hurts. It always hurts. Some of you might still be enduring that pain today. I want to just challenge you. Keep listening. There's hope coming. Just keep listening. Don't, don't lose track of what we're going through here. Divorce harms the couple. Divorce also harms the children. I could read you a host of statistics about the effects that divorce has on children, but instead, let me just share one woman's story. Uh, Most of you are familiar with Kelly Clarkson as uh, the first winner of the hit television show, American Idol, back in 2002, which was 20 years ago. That's crazy. Kelly's parents divorced at age six. At age 16... She wrote a song about that experience, which became eventually a top hit. Listen to the words of this song. I will not make the same mistakes that you did. I will not let myself cause my heart so much misery. I will not break the way you did. You fell so hard. I've learned the hard way to never let it get that far because of you. I never stray too far from the sidewalk. Because of you, I learn to play on the safe side so I don't get hurt. Because of you, I find it hard to trust not only me, but everyone around me. Because of you, I am afraid. Some of you in this room are still enduring pain from the divorce of your parents when you were a child. Let me encourage you for just a moment. You are not doomed to repeat your parents' mistakes. You hear me? Just because mom and dad got divorced doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen to you. You can have a healthy and happy and holy marriage But please please hear me. The solution, the the path towards that is not to look at what mom and dad did and swing the pendulum over here. The, The solution is not to look at mom and dad at all, but look to Jesus. Look at the hope that he provides. Divorce harms the couple. It harms the children. Most importantly, divorce, specifically speaking to Christians here, divorce harms our witness. Divorce harms our witness. Maybe you're thinking, well, how does it harm our witness? Consider what the Apostle Paul says about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the same passage Jesus has quoted. And then Paul adds, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Husbands and wives, your marriage is meant to be a picture of the shape of the gospel. And by the way, if you hear our guest this morning, when we use that word gospel, it literally means good news. It's the good news of what God has done in Jesus to rescue sinners like you and me. That's the gospel. It's the good news of what God does to save sinners. Now, in a healthy marriage, a husband will sacrifice for his bride. He would die to himself. He would die to his own desires, and he will love her and devote himself to her well-being, just like Jesus gave his life for the church and devotes himself to the well-being of his people. In a healthy marriage, a wife will submit to and follow and support her husband's leadership. Just as the church submits to King Jesus. In a healthy marriage, the couple commits until death parts them from one another, just like Jesus will never be parted from his people. You see, marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. So let me ask you, brother sister, how accurately does your marriage display the gospel? Consider for a moment the, the beauty of the Grand Canyon. Never been to the Grand Canyon. Hope to make it one day. Never been there, but I'm told that there's not a picture on the planet that can do it justice. The same is true with our marriages. No wife can perfectly display what the church is supposed to do as she submits to Jesus. And certainly, no husband can perfectly display the way that Christ died for His church. We can't even come close. No marriage can picture the gospel in a way that really does it justice. but. Some pictures can do better than others. Some pictures give you a breathtaking sense of the glory of the Grand Canyon. It's majestic. It's beautiful. Other pictures, not so much. Here's my question. Christian husband, what type of picture of the gospel does your husbanding represent? Christian wife, what type of picture of the gospel are you displaying in your marriage? If we're going to follow Jesus in our most intimate relationships, we need to understand that divorce is always painful. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. That does not mean that divorce is always sinful. Divorce is always painful, but it's not necessarily always sinful. I'll give you an example. Cancer was never a part of God's original design. No cancer in the Garden of Eden, right? Cancer, always painful. No question. Is it a sin to get cancer? No. So, too, with divorce. It's never intended. It's always harmful. Yes, sometimes it might be a sin to get divorced, but not always, which leads us to truth number four, that divorce is sometimes permitted. Divorce is sometimes permitted. It is always the result of sin, but in itself, divorce is not always sinful. Consider two examples. Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, is considered a just man, a righteous man, even as he's planning to divorce Mary quietly. Or consider the example of God himself in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, who says that because of his people's unrepentant, persistent, spiritual adultery, he's giving them a certificate of divorce. Divorce is always the result of sin, but it is not always in itself sinful. So, brother, or sister, please, let us be careful not to heap shame and guilt upon those who have been divorced for legitimate biblical reasons. So what are the biblical reasons when divorce is permitted? Let me suggest three. Number one, Divorce is permitted in cases of adultery. This is very clear in our text. Look at verse 9 again, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Notice that Jesus forbids divorce except for sexual immorality. Immorality. That word, there's two words in our English Bibles, sexual immorality is one word in the Greek, the original language that the Gospel of Matthew is written in. The word in the Greek will sound familiar to you. It's the word pornea, pornea, and pornea was sort of a junk drawer type of term. You know, you've got a junk drawer in your house probably where you just shove all sorts of stuff. You don't know where it goes. It just, that's the junk drawer. Pornea is like the junk drawer term for any sexual sin, any unsanctioned sexual activity. By the way, and we'll dive more into this next week, the only intimacy that God permits, sexual intimacy that God permits is between a man and a woman within the marriage covenant. Everything else is sin. So, Jesus says, anything that can fit in that junk drawer, that's a reason to divorce your spouse. When a husband or a wife sins sexually, hear me, it is a serious offense that breaks the marriage covenant. Well, I want you to listen to me really, really clearly. When you divorce your spouse for that reason, you are not breaking the marriage covenant. You are simply announcing formally that the covenant has already been broken. It's already been broken by the sin. You're simply publicizing it through the divorce. So adultery would be the first reason. A second reason is abandonment. To get this, we need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul outlines another occasion when divorce is permissible. The passage is going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to try to explain what Paul is saying here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 13, and then verse 15. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace." So, what's Paul saying? In verses 10 and 11, Paul begins by quoting Jesus on the topic of divorce. That's why he says, not I, but the Lord. I'm going to quote Jesus. That's what he's saying. And then he says, uh, not to separate what God has joined together. He's quoting Matthew chapter 19. In verse 12, when Paul says, I, not the Lord... Some people have said, well, that must not really matter because it's just Paul saying it. No, what Paul's saying there, he's not saying this isn't Scripture. He's saying, I don't have a direct quote from Jesus on this, but let me tell you another situation, another situation that Jesus didn't mention when divorce may be permissible. Here's the situation. What happens when you become a Christian, your spouse doesn't, and they don't want to be married to a Christian anymore. Some of you became a Christian after you got married, and your spouse was not a believer, and you very much found yourself in a situation kind of like what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 7. What do you do if he's okay being married to a Christian? Okay, Paul says, stay married. But if he doesn't want to be married anymore, let him go. You're free. Free to divorce. In verses 13 and 14, in most cases, the Christian spouse should remain married and be an example to their unbelieving spouse. But if they no longer want to be married, you can let them out of the marriage. Well, let me just take a moment, just as an aside. Those of you in this room that are not married, please listen to me carefully. Whether you're 18 or 80... Please, please do not get involved in a romantic relationship with someone that does not share your beliefs about the scriptures, about the gospel, about who Jesus is. Please don't do that. Not saying that God can't use it. He does, he has, he's done it here but you are borrowing a world of trouble and hurt. If you knowingly pursue a relationship believing the gospel and your partner does not, please don't do it. Let me get one more reason why divorce is permissible, and that's in cases of abuse. Now, you'll notice that I put an asterisk there on the screen beside the word abuse. I did that for two reasons. Reason number one is that the topic of abuse is often abused. I don't even say that to be cheeky, although it's kind of funny. But it really can be abused. That word in our culture today, especially this side of the Me Too movement, is thrown around a lot, very often without defining what it means. And often, when we use the word abuse, we're referring to something that would not have been called abuse even 10 years ago. So we need to be careful that we're clear about the behavior that we're calling abuse. The second reason why I put an asterisk beside this third reason or permissible reason for divorce is that there is no clear scripture that I can point you to that says, here's permission to divorce in cases of abuse. Or maybe you're thinking, well, why even say it at all? Well, sometimes abuse is sexual in nature. If the abuse is sexual in nature, then you would be free to divorce based on the first reason, sexual immorality. Other times, abuse becomes a form of abandonment. An abusive husband may impose such intolerable conditions upon his wife that she's forced to leave the home. This forced abandonment has the same effect as if your husband or your wife packed their bags and moved across the country never to return. So abuse can become something like abandonment in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. One Bible teacher helpfully says this, abuse can be grounds for divorce but the decision shouldn't be made alone. Seek the counsel of your church's elders. They can walk with you and help you discern if abuse is happening, and if so, what kind, as well as what path to take. Let me plead with you. If this is your situation right now, would you please talk with one of our pastors before you leave here today? I promise you we will listen to you. I promise you we will do all we can to come alongside you and help you if these are these or any other sin is plaguing your marriage would you please talk to someone before you leave today the longer you suffer in isolation the longer you suffer please open up to somebody about what you're going through Before we move on from 1 Corinthians 7, we also need to recognize that number five, remarriage is sometimes permitted. Notice 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15, Paul says, When an unbelieving spouse leaves, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Which means, in other words, that if divorce, if the divorce is permissible, you're not bound to the marriage any longer. Uh, Jesus basically says the same thing in Matthew 19, verse 9. He says, it's adultery to remarry except after a legitimate divorce. So here's the biblical principle. Hear me clearly. Remarriage is permitted when divorce is permitted. If your divorce was justified biblically by one of the reasons we talked about, then remarriage is also permitted by Jesus. But if your divorce was for a reason other than those, then remarriage would not be permitted by Jesus. If you divorce because your ex sinned against you in one of those ways, then you are free to remarry. But if you divorce simply because you didn't like your ex any longer, or your ex divorced you because you were the one that was committing adultery or abusive or whatever, then you are not free to remarry. Maybe you hear that and you say, well, what if it's too late? What if it's too late? If you've been divorced and you shouldn't have, you can go to your ex and confess your sin. You can tell them you're sorry for whatever you did that led to the divorce. Perhaps God would even use that to reconcile the relationship in some, in some form. If you've been divorced and you haven't remarried, please talk to an owner before you begin pursuing a romantic relationship. Listen, it is far easier to have those painful conversations about divorce and remarriage before you fall for somebody. And if you've been divorced and remarried when you shouldn't have, you might be hearing this and think, well, I, I got to go back to my ex. I got to divorce my current spouse and go back to my ex. Don't do that. No. No, don't, don't add to the, the sin. Live in the manner in which you were called. You can look back and say, I shouldn't have done that, but I'm going to be faithful and follow Jesus today and love my husband, love my wife, and be a faithful spouse. Whatever your situation is If any of this is hard for you or you're not certain or you need help thinking through your situation, please talk with one of the pastors. We'll happily help give you individual counsel from the Scriptures on this issue. But I want you to please remember this. Divorce is not an ongoing sin. Remember uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter She's got this big scarlet letter on her chest, right? And it's just kind of this ongoing shame for what she's done. And some of us, I think we think in the church that divorce is like that. It's kind of like as long as you're in that state, you're an ongoing perpetual sin. That's not true. It's not true. If you divorced sinfully, you can confess that sin to the Lord and be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to what? To forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we're going to follow Jesus in our most intimate relationships, we need to recognize that remarriage is sometimes permitted. When I say that, number five, I shudder to think that some might view that as a reason to get out of the marriage, as an escape hatch. So let me give you one final truth. Divorce is never preferred. It's never preferred. Imagine that um, I came in here this morning missing an arm. Just walk up to the stage and I've got one arm. And you come up to me, and you're like, hey, what happened to your arm? This is a big change. I said, you know, I had a splinter the other day, and so I took care of it. Everything's fine, right? That would be ridiculous. And yet, when sin enters the marriage, some of us are too quick to reach for the ax when what we need is a pair of tweezers. How often are we tempted to think, I've got to be done with this, I can't take it anymore, rather than doing the hard, fine, detailed work of dealing with the issue. Although divorce is sometimes permitted, it is never preferred. The Pharisees come up to Jesus looking for loopholes, They want the permission to divorce their wives for any reason. Jesus will grant some exceptions where it's permissible to divorce your spouse, but he's not going to give us a free pass, carte blanche, to whenever you want, just get out of the marriage. The disciples understood the seriousness of what Jesus is teaching here. If you look at verse 10, they say, if this is the case, then it's better not to even be married at all. Even if you or your spouse has, have sinned in one of the ways that makes divorce permissible, there's still something preferable to divorce. Here's what's prefer- preferable. The best thing that could possibly happen would be for the sinner to truly repent and to be restored. Hear me carefully, please. There's so many landmines we can fall into here. Hear me carefully. If you or your children are currently being abused by your spouse, I am not suggesting you need to stick it out in hopes that your abuser changes. The elders will support an abuse victim separating from her spouse for the physical safety of her or the children. But I am saying that the best-case scenario is for the sinner to repent, not merely to say, I'm sorry, and then repeat the cycle, but to really repent and change and be restored. That's what's always preferred. If your marriage is struggling this morning, dear brother, sister, friend, please talk with someone. Don't suffer in isolation. I can tell you from personal experience that God can redeem even the most pain filled marriage. Years ago, about 12 years ago, my marriage was in a precarious position. After several years of repeated Unrepentant sin against my bride, Holly gave me back her wedding ring. Some of you heard me share this story before. And I think some of the hardest words that I've ever heard in my entire life is when she gave me that ring and she said, I don't want this back until you mean it. I can honestly say in that time, I didn't know if my marriage would survive. That's the truth. And yet, God is gracious and kind and glorious. I repented of my sin, I got help. Holly and I sat down and submitted to biblical counseling, submitted to the leaders in our church. And at one point along the way, one of our counselors pointed us to a promise from God in Joel chapter 2, verse 25. There's been these locusts that have swarmed in and destroyed the crops. There's no crops in Israel, and they're starving. And God gives this incredible promise. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The promise is not that God will restore the crops, but the years. And that biblical counselor sat down with Holly and I, and and she said, God can take these pain-filled, sin-stained, miserable, horrible years, and He can restore you years that are better than you could have ever imagined. And I can stand before you today and tell you that that is true. By the grace of God, that is true. Maybe you say, well, how can I be sure that is true? How can I be sure that God can do something like that? You look at your life and you feel like you've made a mess of it. Your, your marriage ended or you remarried when you shouldn't have or you were the one that was in sin. Everything just looks in shambles. Your marriage now looks in shambles. And you say, how can I really trust that God can do that? That he can take something that dark and that horrible and that filled with sin and turn it into something beautiful. Here's the answer. Here's how you can know. Because he's done it before. Go back TO A HILL CALLED CALVARY WHEN THE SKY TURNED BLACK, THE DARKEST DAY in human history, where the, most, the greatest evil that's ever happened in human history. And God takes that evil and he turns it into the most beautiful thing imaginable, our salvation. And there on that cross, we have a God who doesn't merely swoop in and save us and put us back on the sidewalk somewhere, but swoops in, saves us, adopts us, changes us, grows us, and makes us a part of his faith family. That's what we have in Christ. That's the hope for your marriage today. That's the hope for you in your singleness. That's the hope for you after a divorce. It's Jesus, and it's Jesus alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you.